0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rolheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org, that's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my two friends, Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been?
1: Well, I've been traveling again, so I can never keep up with Dan Horan. He's like traveler extraordinary here. But for me, especially for the last two years where I have barely left this house, you know, last time we recorded, I was in Seattle for an event there. And shout out to all the good people in Seattle where we had a great time with an event at the cathedral. But last week, I traveled to Washington, D.C. for the summit event put on by the Leadership Roundtable, a Catholic organization that tries to help parishes and other Catholic groups with kind of best practices. And it was a wonderful event. And I met a bunch of friends of the podcast there. So I want to give a shout out especially to Kristen Halvey from Our Lady of Mount Carmel Parish in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Kristen, thank you for the cocktail that you bought me on Whatever night that was, Thursday night. Also, Bob Bodoni, from, uh, who, who works with Harvard University and was one of the speakers there, said he never misses. So it's great to hear from our listeners, and they're always welcome to support us in any way, including buying us a cocktail,
2: right? <laughs> Most welcome.
1: <laughs> what about you, Dan? I know your schedule has been packed.
2: Yeah, yeah, it has. I, I had to laugh when you talked about the traveling extraordinaire because— uh I guess it's a it's a professional in in the religious sense of a religious profession of vows habit because we Franciscans are an itinerant a mendicant order and Francis of Assisi famously did not want us to be locked down like monks in a monastery or canons in a cathedral but to be out with the people in the world and you know we don't always travel not all of us have ministries that that require that but some of us find ourselves making up for the rest of the community <laughs> with with by foot by by bus by plane so yeah it's been it's been wonderful I spent. Last Last week with... Um in a number of, of places, actually. It began with University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. So, Go Flyers, Great Marianist Institution. I was very humbled to have been invited to serve as the Inclusive Excellence Scholar in Residence this year there. So, I was there for a few days giving lectures and presentations and engaging in conversation. So, you know, a shout out to the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and to the whole Flyer community there who were incredibly welcoming and engaging and and just just wonderful. So, that's, that's a Lot coming from a St. Bonaventure Bonnie because we're a ten rivals, but I can say go Flyers that that except for the two times we play each other in basketball for each each season. And then I was out in San Diego for a board meeting of the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego. Always great to be there with my colleagues and and to see and to promote and to support the great work that's going on there. But the uh, the highlight I think the pinnacle of of the most recent travels was heading to Central New York State where I was with my family last weekend where we celebrated the baptism of my newest nephew. So shout out to little Finley, who is one of the newest members of the body of Christ and was a great sport about the whole thing. Everybody commented on, you know, not only how cute he was, but how well behaved and smiley he was. In fact, I had the mass and I was greeting parishioners at my brother's parish in Syracuse. And as they were leaving, there was one young couple that had a baby and a carrier And I said, oh, look at this little guy. What did he think of the baptism? And and his dad said, well, he's up next month. And so we were telling him, you got to be as good as that baby who was just baptized. So it was a lot of fun. David, what have you been up to?
0: So I mentioned in the last show that I had the opportunity last Friday as we're recording this to play a concert at the Fireplace, which is a retreat house run by the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration here in my neighborhood of Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. So shout out to Sister Julia Walsh and all of the folks that live at the Fireplace. We had a great time. It was in the backyard. They had a fire hence the name the fireplace in a fire pit and I managed to play for about an hour and a half and that's the first time that i've done a live show like that in front of a crowd in almost fifteen years so it was really enjoyable i had a great time i'm a little rusty both on my music and my crowd work my patter and my repartee with the the audience was you know occasionally a little hammy but I feel like it was a it was well received and I I loved looking out in the audience and seeing that there were folks from the neighborhood, my students from Loyola, vowed religious, not just Franciscan sisters, but also some Franciscans from the local friaries and a Dominican or two and some other folks, and my kids and family were all there. And so a chance to really have my my children see what it is to have a rich and diverse community that includes vowed religious— That was really wonderful for me. So I had a great time. I hope that they invite me back. And that has been wonderful. It was also exhausting on like every level, physically and emotionally. It took me a couple of days to recover from that.
1: So... I'm here to report that from an uh, objective observer, it went well. So I was very sad that I couldn't be there because I was en route back from Washington, D.C. But on Sunday, I ran into some folks from the newly formed small San Egidio community here in Chicago. And one of the women we were with, we were out doing some ministry to homeless, and she said she had been at the concert and it was awesome.
0: Oh, wow. That's awesome. And for folks that don't know about San Egidio, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, because that's an amazing international ministry to the poor that has just started or maybe started back, I'm not sure, here in Chicago, but I'm delighted that you're involved with them, Heidi. And I can't say enough good things about them. We were involved with them when we were in Nashville, my wife and I, and I just it was very formative to my Catholic experience coming into the church, working with that community. So I'm just delighted to hear that.
1: I was just going to say, I love all these connections where we all know a lot of the same folks and are running into the same folks.
0: Yeah. Well, looking ahead to our show today, we're going to be talking about the recent busing of migrants to Martha's Vineyard and other locations by the governor of Florida. We're going to be talking about the recent synthesis documents about the Synod on Synods released by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And we're going to be talking about the war in Ukraine in our last segment. So all that's coming up. Please stay with us here on The Francis Effect.
2: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dolt and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. We are recording on Wednesday, just as Hurricane Ian is heading toward the west coast of Florida. Already, President Joe Biden has reached out to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to assure him of the federal government's support in the aftermath of what is expected to be a catastrophic storm. DeSantis, for his part, publicly praised the president's approval of the emergency declaration for his state. But just weeks earlier, Governor DeSantis's attitude toward the Democratic president was decidedly different. On September 14th, DeSantis chartered two planes to transport about 50 migrants and asylum seekers, mainly from Venezuela, to Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts. DeSantis defended the stunt as necessary to protest the Biden administration's immigration policies— The Florida governor originally planned a similar drop-off of migrants near Biden's Delaware home, but that transfer was eventually canceled. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, another leading Republican, has similarly been bussing migrants from his state to Democratic-led areas far from the border, including to Washington, D.C., New York, and Chicago. These men, women, and children are already vulnerable, given that they have fled violent homelands often risking their lives and walking for weeks or even months to reach our borders to plead for asylum. Some were tricked into boarding planes and buses and ended up in parts of the country far from their scheduled asylum hearings. That DeSantis and Abbott would use vulnerable people as political pawns was criticized by many, including some U.S. Catholic bishops. Bishop Daniel Flores of Brownsville, Texas, for example, said that, And I quote, the degrading disrespect with which immigrants are treated in this country like pawns in a game of political showmanship is a disgrace, end quote. Yet the Bishop's Conference did not make any public criticism of these two governors, who both happen to be Catholic. The Bishop's Conference did, however, release a statement marking the Vatican's World Day of Migrants and Refugees. In that statement, the bishop said that Catholics should use the day to, quote, reflect on the circumstances confronting migrants, refugees, and victims of human trafficking. To be sure, Catholic charities, many Catholic individuals, and other churches were part of helping these men, women, and children settle into their new areas, providing material as well as emotional and spiritual support. But Heidi, what does this say about our church that two prominent Catholic governors have taken to moving already vulnerable people around for political gain, and does this fit with church teaching to welcome the stranger?
1: Yeah, well, the obvious answer is no. I mean, first of all, I'd li- I'm glad to see that Biden and DeSantis have somewhat buried the hatchet in their conflict with one another to rally behind the need to support people in Florida. I was watching some videos of the hurricane hitting Sanibel Island, a place I have visited before, and it really looks like it's going to be an extreme s- storm. And we're praying for all the people in the path of this and the many you know, increased storms that we're seeing that are hitting so many places, Puerto Rico, etc. But back to the busing and flying of migrants, I mean, this is so clearly against our church teaching, which is to welcome the stranger. But it struck me, I kept waiting each day to see if the bishops' conference would do a statement about this, and they didn't. So I think you know that if the Governors, Catholic governors of two other states were so flagrantly dismissing Catholic teaching on an issue, if it had to do with uh, transgender folks or abortion or something else that had to do with sexuality, we would be hearing about it, you know, maybe even calls for denying them communion. So I'm not saying we should deny communion to Abbott or DeSantis, but I was grateful to see that a number of church leaders, including some bishops, called them out. NCR did an editorial about this. We called it despicable and said that Catholics should critique it. And we pointed out that, you know, these are people. These are people with inherent human dignity and people who have already suffered. And I guess that's what really struck me is that that you heard the stories especially of these Venezuelans who were put on the plane to Martha's vineyard all because some politician thought it would be clever to drop them off where Barack Obama has has a large home and you know, like y- you take these folks. In the meantime, I'm reading about the stats that show that the majority of asylum seekers in this country are not even at the border. Most of them, the largest percentage are in California. Many of them are already in blue state cities. So this was all very performative and not very funny or clever and hurting people on top of it. So very, very disappointing.
0: The day that all this was unfolding, I tweeted out to the conference of bishops in Florida that I was upset with them because my wife, who was an editor at U.S. Catholic for a number of years, used to tell me that any time that anything had to do with abortion, she would get a fax from a bishop's conference within the hour, but any other social justice issue, there was silence. And within a day, they did come up with a statement, and we'll link to that in the, the show notes. But one of the things that really struck me about the statement, and we've talked about this on the show before, and you— gestured towards this, Heidi, when it's a Democratic president, a statement from a bishop's conference will often name that politician explicitly, and we'll talk explicitly about the different sorts of things that the politician is doing in great detail. Here, the statement from the Florida Conference of Bishops was really general, just basically repeating that, we, you know, we're, we're in favor of treating migrants with human dignity, but not really calling out and naming the politicians explicitly the way that I wish that they would if they're going to be consistent and not hypocritical about these sorts of things. So, I mean, it's not that they haven't responded, but they didn't respond with the haste that they normally do around some other issues, and they responded once again treating Republican politicians with a different sort of approach than they do with Democratic politicians. Now, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, Dan and Heidi, but that was my take on their response.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this, unsurprisingly perhaps, You know, one of the first things that comes to mind is the inherent kind of racism and xenophobia that's also operating here, because a lot of the rhetoric around border issues, border security, immigration, migration, asylum seeking, these things become kind of compressed and and homogenized in a lot of the talking points, particularly of these two Republican governors and politicians of similar sort of ideology and perspective. So that, you know, we talk about, quote, unquote, illegal immigrants. And that becomes, you know, not only is it a dehumanizing and a depersonalizing sort of term, but it also then assumes that everybody who is of a Latinx identity or descent or is Spanish speaking from Central or South America is is, is exactly the same. Where I'm getting at with this is that the Venezuelan people are leaving their country and have absolute by U.S. government standards and international standards, absolute 100% right to seek asylum. These are not folks who, first of all, I, I'm not subscribing to the, the rhetoric of, of these Republican politicians around you know, what motivates or doesn't motivate people to come to our borders and the kind of oftentimes either exaggerated or outright misleading claims that are that are projected onto Democratic politicians. What I am saying though is that wherever you stand including those who who might have you know maybe more restrictive views of of how many folks can sh- should be allowed to come you know through our our southern border you need to recognize these these are people who actually have legitimate claim that's that's part of what makes this so egregious right I also want to share just a random thing. So the the New York Times podcast, The Daily last week had a, you know, one of these follow-ups about this particular story and, and talked with one of the reporters who was investigating what happened, particularly in San Antonio, Texas. And I think I may have been at the McDonald's that morning, the weekend of is it the ninth and tenth of yeah, the, the 10th and 11th of September. I happened to be in San Antonio and I happened to be walk to a McDonald's not far from where I was staying to get some coffee in the morning. And I noticed there were a lot of people who looked like they might've been Official immigrants, you know, who who were given, they all had the same sort of see-through bags with some supplies and documents and this sort of stuff, which if anyone has seen, particularly around the, the, the Syrian or the Ukrainian violent crises in Europe or elsewhere, when the United Nations admits people into refugee status or asylum status, and and they're moving through transportation, they're often given these kind of standard kind of uh, packets, and so there was there was a, a couple dozen of these folks, uh, most of whom were not English speaking. Who were at this McDonald's, and and it all came back to me because I wasn't sure what the story was until the New York Times. I went back and reread the story. The a lead on a story that was published on September 15th begins. Ardenis Nazareth, newly arrived from Venezuela, was standing in a McDonald's parking lot across the street from a San Antonio shelter a few days contemplating his next steps. And they go on to talk about how Governor DeSantis was behind this, you know, sending people into Texas, into San Antonio in particular. And one of the the means of kind of getting people to engage in conversation to accept this quote-unquote free transportation was the handing out of McDonald's gift cards. So that's – I just want to acknowledge that that, in retrospect, was was very, very strange. Um, and it seemed strange at the time, too. The McDonald's staff people, I think, weren't sure what was going on either. But that's that's not p- directly related to this, but it's just one of those weird circumstances of history.
0: Something else to say about that. In the immediate aftermath of this, as the news cycles were churning, you hear a lot of language about these people being illegal immigrants from the right. And several years ago, when I was working in television, I produced a documentary called Divided Families about the broken immigration system. And every single person that we interviewed who was working on these problems, whether they were immigration lawyers or people who were working for World Relief or any of these other organizations, said the same thing, that there is no line for these people to get into oftentimes for them to come and do it the right way. But if we were to find any people who were doing it the right way, these asylum seekers would be in that category because once they got here, they were already being processed through the system. And what was done by these governors was basically to interrupt that processing, take them out of, and in some cases, thousands of miles away from where they needed to be to actually follow the process. And so what really angers me about this is these were people, if if your rhetoric is, if your position is, I just want them to do it the right way, these were the people who were the golden ticket holders of doing it the right way, and they got knocked off the path intentionally to interrupt and to make it so that they would be sent out of the system just for trying to follow what they thought was the next right thing to do. That's what really frustrates me about this.
1: Yeah. And then on top of it, we have the follow-up stories that are starting to come out now. I mean, the irony was that DeSantis was not sending asylum seekers from Florida. He was sending people from Texas. So it wasn't even his state's business, but... Funny you should mention business because it seems that the company that he chartered the planes to send to Martha's Vineyard and spent $12 million of Florida money on has some connection to DeSantis or to his campaign, and that's being investigated now. You know, you can't help but think about, well, what could $12 million have done to actually help asylum seekers as they're trying to settle in here. And like you said, David, to follow the rules and apply legitimately for asylum. And I think the story I just read this morning said the $12 million that DeSantis spent was also part of COVID relief money. So, I mean, it was earmarked for something else. And here we have all for the purpose of a political stunt, trying to shove it in in the face. I mean, this idea that that you know, Barack Obama should open his home to people individually. And, and the, the negative headlines that happened, I noticed even here in Chicago. So for example, when a number of folks arrived on a bus here, they were originally in Chicago, but they were moved to a nearby suburb. And the right-wing media kind of presented that as some terrible thing, like Chicago trying to get rid of these people, when really they were just trying to find the most comfortable place for them at a hotel that was near the city. Same thing in Martha's Vineyard, where people were moved off the island onto a military base where there would be place for them to stay, and people interpreting that negatively. The experience I've seen with some of the refugee groups that I'm involved with here in Chicago is that people have been very much stepping up to try to offer material and other support for the people who are just kind of ended up here confused about why they were put on a bus and, and for many days and, and sent to another state.
2: And that's what's been heartening to me, you know, in Martha's Vineyard as well. When when there were interviews with with some of these asylum seekers who were against their will moved to that location, the, as as we mentioned at the outset, organizations, nonprofits, and churches like Catholic Charities and others and 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 the teams that support them, the volunteers, greeted these folks with great hospitality and welcome, and that was reflected in their experience. They said, "You know, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why I was moved here i didn't this was not my intention, and yet I'm so grateful for these people who are are opening themselves up and and welcoming us here and and Heidi, I can't help but think about that twelve million dollar Waste of money and, and interruption to people's lives, and thinking about all the money that the state of Florida is going to need to receive now from FEMA, twelve million dollars could have gone a long way. I mean the COVID relief funding, I'm sure, could have been more easily translated into hurricane relief funding, um, even though I'm not you know an economist and I don't, I'm not a state politician. The other thing I'll add too is in addition to the investigation of the source of the money and you know maybe this pay for-play kind of relationship with the charter service. The Texas Sheriff's Office in San Antonio is also lodging an investigation because what, in effect, Governor DeSantis did was human trafficking, (laughs) taking human beings, misleading them and transporting them without their explicit consent across state lines. Uh, Last time I checked, that is a federal crime. So it is also... It leads to almost like farcical levels when you think about the fact that the governor of Texas is doing this. The governor of Florida wants in on this you know, scheme and, and this kind of publicity and, and goes into Texas and then commits crimes that are investigated by the authorities in Texas. I mean, you, you really can't make this stuff up. And I think the thing I want to say about this is I don't understand the reactions of those who still stand by and support politicians and these antics. I mean, antics to me seems actually too lighthearted in discussing something so serious as this. I've seen this on social media. I've I've heard this in television clips where people are saying, well, you know, this is the right thing to do. We have to deal with this quote unquote. Now, you know, these northern states should have to deal with this or this, that, and the other and when people like you know the bishops in Texas like bishop flores or archbishop gustavo from san antonio and others who who are great pastoral leaders who are like pope francis shepherds who smell like the sheep who are there with their people when they say you know you are using human lives for political purposes these are like pawns in a game that's dehumanization this is a life issue and there's nothing nothing pro-life about what these governors are doing and what their supporters are. So if you are a supporter of these two politicians and politicians like them, you need to examine your conscience. And I say that quite seriously.
1: Agreed, Dan. And and, and to add to your farcical analogy, that they did it during the week dedicated to the World Day of Migrants and Refugees. So I mean, just at the same time that our church is holding up the benefits of helping people who, through no fault of their own, are forced to leave their homes and have to travel somewhere else—that that just really struck me. And in in the papal statement in advance of the World Day of Migrants and Refugee refugees, it, it said that God's plan involves leaving no one behind, and so nothing could be more. Stark, then not only not leaving no one behind, but basically trying to say, not my problem. I'm just going to send these guys elsewhere.
2: Well, and to extend that one step further with the tragedy that's, that's likely to unfold in slow motion ahead of us this week with Hurricane Ian, there are a lot of people, maybe tens of thousands, if not more Floridians who are going to have to, in the middle of the night at a, a moment's notice, flee and leave their home. Leaving everything behind, not sure of what's going to be left when they return, if they are able to return. And this is exactly the experience of these women and men and children that are, you know, so I, if, if there was ever an opportunity for empathy and, and openness and understanding, I would hope this is the moment. I don't have much hope for Governor DeSantis. He doesn't strike me as somebody who is introspective enough in this way. But for those who might be his supporters in that state, take a good look at what's going on
0: right now.
1: Ooh, I love the way you brought that all full circle there, Dan.
0: <laughs> so, One of the things that Pope Francis said in his speech to the United Nations, and I've talked about this recently on the program, is that our job is to support the vulnerable in becoming agents of their own dignity. It's clear that the actions of Governor DeSantis and others are not engaged in that sort of end. I hope that our listeners will join us in both praying for those that are vulnerable, but also taking opportunities that we have with our resources or our time to assist and support those who are simply trying to protect their families and simply trying to make a better life for themselves to become agents of their own dignity. Unfortunately, I'm sure that we're going to be returning to this subject later in the season. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. In October 2021, at the behest of Pope Francis, a new global synod was launched, the Synod on Synodality. Unlike the synodal meetings that have happened in years past, these meetings featured a new and revised process beginning with an unprecedented listening phase, which was scheduled to last for two years and which was extended a a number of months due to the global COVID pandemic. The stated purpose of this listening phase has been to provide opportunities for both current Catholics and those who have been pushed to the margins or even who have left the church to participate in the dialogue process. In September of 2022, Maltese Cardinal Mario Grech Secretary General of the Synod of Bishops spoke at the Catholic Partnership Leadership Roundtable in Washington, D.C., saying, quote, The whole people of God must be involved in the Synod. Unquote. Now, various bishops' conferences around the world are starting to issue summary reports of their respective listening processes. Some of these results have been somewhat controversial. For example, The recent synthesis report of the South African Bishops' Conference encouraged the Church to end clericalism and to open new avenues of ministry to women and to become more inclusive generally. In the past week before our recording, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has released its own synthesis document titled The National Synthesis of the People of God in the United States of America for the Diocesan Phase of the 2021-2023 Synod. If you would like to read it yourself, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, as well as a link to an overview by NCR's columnist, Michael Sean Winters. David, you've had a few days now to read through the document. Why don't you start us off with your thoughts about it?
0: Well, I want to say first of all, and we've talked about this on the show before, I am such a fan of this move towards however you want to call it, the synodal process, the listening process. I really like what Pope Francis is doing, trying to take us from a more authoritarian model of the Church to a more walking with and communitarian model of the Church. I think that that's the right direction for the 21st century. I think that that is taking the spirit of Vatican II into the 21st century. I think that there's a lot of good here. I also think that in the wake of this call from Pope Francis to really engage in this process, process, my observation was, unfortunately, that a lot of bishops around the United States did their best to put obstacles in the way of or to scuttle that process. So, for example, early on, I went and tried to answer a questionnaire in my particular parish here, and the questionnaire was written in such dense technical language. Even as a person with a couple of degrees in theology, I found it to be really, really hard and difficult to voice my opinion on this particular instrument. And I found that there were not many opportunities within my particular parish to actually be involved in listening processes. And that wasn't just because of the pandemic, but it was because there was resistance, I think, in various levels to having us be involved. But I did get involved in a number of other listening processes that were sponsored by other parishes and dioceses around the country and was able to do that over zoom and I, I thank ver- various friends for making me aware of those things and so I was really interested to take a look at this document and it's a it's it's about eight pages long it is a thirty thousand foot view of a lot of the results and I think it's putting the best possible face on the process and the results so among other things, it is very frank about the fact that there was resistance to this process. It says that early on in the document. And it does talk about the fact that there were a great many people who were on the margins of the church or who had been excluded by the church who they worked hard to try and include. That being said... In the wake of this being promulgated, I saw several bishops sort of poo-pooing even this document and giving it sort of the short shrift in terms of what they thought it was saying. I remember in particular one bishop saying, well, I uh, I don't see the optimistic language here that I had hoped to see. Well, I think that it's not optimistic because it's an honest take on a lot of people being kind of upset with the way that the Church has been lately. So those are my initial thoughts, but I'd love to hear what the two of you think as well.
2: Yeah, I, I, so I haven't had a chance to look at the full national report, but I've, I've been reading along with some of the, the summaries and analyses so far, and I think everything that has been brought up I, I concur with. And like you, David, I'm disappointed by and but not surprised that certain bishops and and other figures, especially online, are as you put it, poo-pooing and short-shrifting. You know this this work, which which is par for the course, right? I mean, the whole principle of synodality is is a dialogical and dynamic process that requires as I'm fond of saying belief in the holy spirit and I am very very convinced that if not in terms of their profession of faith and certainly in their practice a lot of church leaders and ordinary Christians alike act as if the holy spirit does not exist they do not believe you know it's what I call holy spirit atheism and part of that is a trust that god moves in and through the church which is the people of god we have as as you know elements of our faith tradition these are these are doctrines of our church the belief of the census fidelium and the, you know, what presupposes the census fidelium is the census fide that every Christian by virtue of baptism has a sense of faith, meaning a capacity to receive, you know, the inspiration of the Spirit and to be in communion with God and one another in the Spirit. And the census fidelium is about how the Church, as the body of Christ, as the the assembly, receives what it is that's that's being taught with authority, or what we call magisterium. But I'm thinking also this week there is a, a conference at Boston College in honor of the theologian and one of my former professors, Professor Richard Gallardi's work. And, you know, one of the things that he has spent his whole career doing is looking at the the history and the the sources and the tradition around authority and magisterium. And he makes this point that, you know, we still have not, grappled with the renewal, this is not a new thing, but it's a return to the earliest sources of our tradition of a synodal and dynamic process You know, of reception of church teaching, which means it's not just an idea the pope or the bishops get and then they unilaterally pass that on to us and we passively receive. That had been the modus for a long time, for many centuries. But Vatican II went back to the early church as Paul VI did with the synod of bishops process and said, no, 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 the Spirit works in community through dialogue in conversation, and it arises from that experience of the spirit in community it's conveyed to church leaders who then articulate that in the form of teaching, and then that gets passed on to future generations and is received by that same body so that's a a little theology nerding out there but i'm I'm not surprised because I think a lot of both church leaders and individual Christians alike hold that old-fashioned and misplaced understanding. I say old-fashioned because it's it has been around for centuries, but it's misplaced because it doesn't a- arise from our own tradition and from our history.
1: Yeah, I agree. And of course, the event that you quoted with Cardinal Grech speaking at was the event that I was at in Washington DC and his address was very powerful. I think a lot there was a lot of buzz in the room afterwards because he, you know, not only said that listening has to happen, he was very much emphasizing how the, the bishops need to realize the Holy Spirit resides in everyone and that there seems to be sort of a lack of trust in the people. And he specifically mentioned two groups who he thinks in this synodal process are going to come to the fore, and that's divorced and remarried Catholics and the issue of same-sex couples looking for blessings of their unions. And he's said, you know, what what is the fear if we listen to these two groups? Might they have something that we can learn from? And You know, on the one hand, that is very powerful, especially given the way our church has operated in the last couple decades, that a cardinal who's in charge of this whole worldwide process would say those things at a public event. But as someone who has been, you know, part of following kind of church news for several decades now— I feel like we're back in the 1980s where we where we could discuss those things back then, too, when we thought things might actually go beyond the discussion phase. There was a lot of conversation at the Leadership Roundtable event about the difference between listening and consulting. So listening, my understanding, is just I'm hearing you. I'm not going to interrupt. I'm going to at least like hear what you have to say. But consulting involves a step deeper. I'm Taking that into account, I'm taking that into my own experiences, my own things that I believe about the church and allowing it to transform me. And there might be something tangible that you'll see different about the way a bishop would act who's actually consulted rather than just listened. And I think the fear is or the or the concern on the part of a number of people who might be more in my generation is like we've been saying this for years. And First we were listened to, then we weren't listened to, but we've never been consulted. And so I'm getting more on board with the synodality thing because I know I was a little negative at the beginning, but I, I have concerns about whether it will really lead to anything, any lasting change in the church.
0: Well, I I want to speak to that because you, you gave that quotation, what could be the harm of this? Kind of keeping the pulse on social media, those on the more conservative side of the church say the harm is that we're just going to listen to people spout untruth and they're going to speak against established Catholic doctrine and teaching. So that's what the folks on the other side think that the harm will be to speak up for synodality, one of the things that I come back to in my teaching is I, I think a lot about a philosopher from the middle of the 20th century by the name of Hannah Arendt and in her analysis in a book called "The Human Condition," she says there are kind of two ways that we organize big groups of people we organize them economically and we organize them politically. When we organize things economically, you put in eight hundred sets of you know raw materials on the front end of the factory and you know you get 80 widgets out at the end of the other side of the factory, you're basically predicting outcomes. And if things divert from that predicted outcome, something has gone wrong. It's about kind of controlling the future and controlling where we're heading. And she says the political process, in contrast, is not about a predictive future, but an open future where we bring together multiple interests in a process of consensus. And we come up to an outcome that we didn't anticipate and that is greater than we could imagine. And one of the things that oftentimes happens in these processes with the bishops is they want these processes to look like what Arendt called the economic process. They want to know the outcome when they sit down to dialogue. They don't want to be open to an unexpected future. And I think what a lot of people who are still optimistic about the synodal process are going into this with is we still believe in the possibility of an unexpected future for Catholicism. That is part of what animates me in this process and makes me excited. Is if we could actually get the bishops to sit down and be consultative, to actually engage in dialogue instead of simply listening until they get a chance to tell us what the truth is, then we might actually have a church that can survive the 21st century. Now, I'm I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but that's my hope when I am feeling hopeful. Yeah, I really appreciate you
2: saying it that way, David. I'm I'm, I'm kind of on the same page with you, though I think sometimes I come across a bit more pessimistically, which is always makes me laugh because i'm I'm a glass half full kind of person, and my friends can can affirm that you could probably <laughs> confirm that but the i I think there are two things that are that are operative here and and what I'm referring to in thinking about this is your point about the church surviving the twenty first century and i I kind of like the urgency of that and and two things that come to mind are fear of change. And the truth that learning is always uncomfortable, and I think these two things go hand in glove. They're, they're they're two sides of the same coin that reflect the resistance of of church leaders in particular, right? So bishops who have certain teaching authority and pastoral responsibility, but also you know our, our fellow you know ordinary Catholic Christians as well who are resistant. I mean, the fear of change, all of the rhetoric around this concern that somehow we're going to be. Uh, abiding these kind of modernist tendencies, or fads, or so- social developments, or progressive ideologies—all you can pick anyone you want. Whether it's so, this boogeyman of gender ideology, which is a nonsensical term, or you know what have you—you know—it's rooted in a in a false truth, a lie that says that church teaching never changes it always changes and you know at the risk of self-reference my last column uh, you know last week for NCR talked exactly about this and i make the point you know kind of without kid gloves anymore i'm i'm kind of done with this that you know the church's teaching and rhetoric not just it's sort of teaching on the one hand and then this compartmentalized pastoral approach on the other but but the core of it is is simply wrong and it's as wrong as the dehumanization of indigenous peoples during colonialism in the 16th century it's as wrong as the church's prohibition of religious liberty that got John Courtney Murray in trouble in the mid 20th century and so on and so on we can go on and on about this and my thought is if the hope is if the if church leaders could learn from our previous mistakes and actually trust in the holy spirit and trust in their sisters and brothers in the body of christ and and listen to their experiences because they have an experience of god no less than any other person, including the Pope. You know, the Pope has no greater experience of God than my newest baptized nephew. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite true. There's no superpower. We're all sinners. Pope Francis is the first person to say that. We're all imperfect. And that's why it's always with the church together as community. The second thing is that learning is always uncomfortable. And I think that's just a, I think people need to grow up, <laughs> to be honest with you, bishops, other priests and clergy who are peers of mine i think our our sisters and brothers and other siblings in the, in the in the faithful who are reticent who are don't like things that are unfamiliar or new to them need to get over it and i i see a parallel with this kind of secular push across states to prohibit things that are scary or threatening or discomforting for those in comfortable positions in power so you know reckoning with our Our racist history as a nation or the complexity of of gender and sexuality in the world and in human experience, these pushes to legislate, to prohibit this conversation is often rooted in this desire for comfort. We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Well, that's not entirely true. You don't want to make certain people uncomfortable. And I think that's the same thing here. And as an educator, somebody who's given my life to education, I'll be the first to tell and comes from a family of teachers for that matter. Education is always uncomfortable because either, A, you're learning something you didn't know. Ask any kid in fourth grade learning math, right? Something you didn't know before, and it's hard, and it's challenging, and it's uncomfortable. Or, as in perhaps more this case, you have to relearn something you thought you already knew, and it reveals that you are either willfully ignorant, coincidentally ignorant, or that you were just mistaken. And I think that's uncomfortable, and that's okay. (laughs) Anything other than that is ignorance,
1: yeah, and just to, just to add, I don't know if you said it explicitly there, but your column, Dan, that you referenced was about the anti LGBTQ policies, where you're calling the church act dead wrong on the, on these things. David, what I what I was thinking of when you described the economic model is that there has been some critique of progressive Catholics or activist Catholics also operating from that model, like entering into the synodal process, not trusting the process, hoping for a specific outcome you know for example women's ordination or something or change in teaching on blessing of same sex couples and i totally hear what you're saying and i i respect how you're able to let go and enter into that more scary process of possibly learning as as dan mentioned too but i also totally understand people who have felt not validated in their basic humanity for decades from the church. And to ask them to trust the process is a big ask, to let go of thinking that at the end of this process, you're humanity is going to be acknowledged in a way that it wasn't before. So I'm a little bit both and on that. But, I, the, you know, the thing that was talked about the most at this Leadership Conference Roundtable event, which was all focused on synodality, was Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit that. And, and, you know, sometimes that's hard. What's the Holy Spirit talking and what's our own ego talking? That's what we really do need to enter into true Christian discernment to try to figure out.
0: Well, this is one place where the Catholics could learn something, I think, from the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers, who I used to hang out with, because the Quakers have a long 300-year history of, because they are such a Holy Spirit-led group— trying to work out, you know, when one person hears a calling, how the entire community comes around them and helps them to discern the authenticity of that calling and how we might actually move forward. There are processes like that in the Catholic Church as well, but one of the things that the Catholic Church has not been good at doing is including the laity in that discernment process oftentimes. And that's that's an opportunity here. It's an opportunity for us to actually open up and listen to the way that the Spirit is moving in the whole of the church church, not just the hierarchy of the church. I'm sure that we will be coming back to this subject again as the season goes on. For right now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. On February 24th, 2022, Russian forces invaded the nation of Ukraine, and since then, a protracted war has continued to be fought, especially in the eastern portion of the country. While the Russian forces have suffered a tremendous number of setbacks and casualties, including losing territory previously captured by the Russians as they moved west, Russian President Vladimir Putin continues to pursue his unprovoked aggression. Recently, Putin announced the implementation of military conscription that would impact thousands of young Russian men. Additionally, the Russian president has spoken publicly in ways suggesting his openness to using some kinds of nuclear weapons against Ukraine. There are obviously significant geopolitical, economic, and moral implications arising from the situation in Ukraine specifically, and Western Europe more broadly. Given Putin's rhetoric about the Ukraine war as a proxy for fighting the West in general, and with international military and financial support for Ukraine's self-defense, it does not take much imagination to see the potential for this conflict to spill over from an isolated regional war to something far more treacherous and long-reaching. There are a lot of factors to consider and discuss, even as we are seven months out from the initial Russian invasion. Dan, let's start with you. What are your thoughts about the ongoing war in Ukraine? Well, first of all, I think like most wars, if not all wars,
2: there's a sense of futility and uselessness in this. I mean, when you look at the casualty numbers, the latest that I saw estimates for those killed and injured are close to 100,000 basically on both sides. So, you know, somewhere near or under 100,000, this is including the injured on on the Ukrainian side and on the on the Russian side. This call of of President Putin for a reinstatement of the draft has, you know, it's been interesting to see some of the reporting. A lot of men are fleeing the country. And, you know, at least according to one, I believe it was a Washington Post headline you know some of them are saying i'm not interested in dying for this country for this reason for this cause now granted i don't know because of the way that media is so restricted in in russia how reflective that is of the general perspective of of the of the people i don't know you know of course what kind of state propaganda is is suggesting to the people and what they think is going on but i do think that those who are familiar with what's going on in some way or another I can't imagine they're they're behind this. They're supportive of this as a population. So the fact that more people are being kind of sent out to die is is deeply disturbing in in and of itself. Let alone the the kind of you know the unjustified invasion of of a sovereign nation, which began in February, well, really began in 2014, but was escalated this year. I think the other thing that has got some attention lately that I've been thinking a lot about is this reminder of the reality of nuclear holocaust. I mean. I I just find myself both with with the kind of atomic threats that exist, but also how easy it is to slip into a world war, particularly in that part of the world in Europe. I mean, this has happened twice before in the last century. Why can't it happen again? You know, it's not, I think there's an analog here, perhaps, and, and I think Pope Francis actually plays with this a bit in Fratelli Tutti. Of thinking about pandemics. And this is a pandemic of sort of violence. You know, the, the last major flu pandemic in, in 1918, we had long forgotten about that and, and had not really learned the lessons of preparation and, and readiness. And I think, you know, World War I and World War II seem so distant to so many people, especially younger people. And so I think we have reason to be frightened. I think this is a moral issue, and I think it's an issue that, that we can't become numb to.
0: I also want to talk about the Christian implications in this Russian war. About 4 years ago, I was at a meeting at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City and we were having a breakout session on Russia and the rising nationalist movements in Russia. And I said in this room of diplomats and religious experts, I sort of said, "Has anyone paid attention to this guy Alexander Dugan?" And everyone was like, "Who is that?" And Alexander Dugan in many ways is the philosopher behind the rise of Russian fascist nationalism that's been going on in the last decade. He is a hyper-partisan, and he is taking sort of pieces of the orthodox church's theology for scrap and using it to kind of build this notion of Russia being the great savior of humanity against the decadence of the West. And so I think that, you know, we need to realize that the global Christian church is involved in a dialogue about what it is and how it how it should operate with regard to national governments. We saw Trump here trying to co-opt Christianity into his cause. We see Putin definitely co-opting Russian orthodoxy into his cause. And that's a concern because in addition to having proxy wars about East and West, we're also seeing a kind of quiet religious war brewing in some ways. Now, I'm not an expert in international relations, so I've sort of reached the end of my expertise here. But I'd be interested in what you two think about the religious dimension of all this in addition to the nuclear and the political dimensions of all of this?
1: Well, I'm not an expert in international relations either, but I agree with you, David, about the concerns of the connection between religion and the rise of authoritarianism in many countries. We just had the election in Italy this past week and saw the prime minister who used kind of culture war you know, language to kind of rile up her base, similar to some things that we've seen here in the United States. And I think there are a lot of people raising this warning and pointing it out. So it's not like you could say that you're missing it, because you know, I, I read stories all the time about people pointing out these connections about faith being misused in this way. I was thinking about How the media covers the war and how after a certain number of months, things kind of do leave the front page. And the return comes when there's something either like positive news, like the reports that Ukraine had retaken some parts of the country that the Russians had taken, or the threats about nuclear war. But it is very difficult to watch the death and the suffering of many, many people on both sides. I, I saw the people, not only Russian men fleeing the country, but some people in Russia protesting and risking their safety, if not their lives, and being arrest, arrested because they were willing to you know go out and publicly protest what, what Putin is doing with this war. And the reports from the battlefields continue just to be so so grim. David, the, earlier this week, you tweeted, are there, are there certain kinds of movies that you never watch, like certain genres? Like, I don't know where you get these things sometimes on social media. But for me, it's war movies. I do, And there's so many good war movies out there, but I just can't make it through the battlefield scenes with the suffering and death that's shown there. And I think about that every day about what's going on in Ukraine on both sides. So I think our Christian faith does require us to keep shining a light on that, though.
2: Yeah, I I do on occasion watch war movies, but it's interesting. I, I don't think I watch them that often. You know, it's been like 1917 and uh, Saving Private Ryan, those kind of classics. But that's an interesting point, Heidi. I I keep thinking back to our our earlier segment about what the Republican governors of Texas and Florida are doing with asylum-seeking people at at, at our border and in our country. And I think about the language of using human beings as political pawns. And I, and I keep thinking that that's really, there's very little difference between the intention that leads to what a Governor DeSantis or Abbott do with these men, women, and children, and what Vladimir Putin's doing, not only with the people of Ukraine, but also with his own people. I think that, to me, is what strikes me, David. To your question about the kind of religious element, you know, the the sort of theological element, I, I I can't help but think that people like Vladimir Putin are not looking at these people as human beings with dignity and value, with with intrinsic worth. But but it's it's all a means toward an end. And as going back to the great tradition of Saint Augustine, you know, if if we mistake things that are meant to be treated. And respect it as ends in themselves, like human life and dignity, as means. Then we're committing grave sin, and and I, and so I think there's there's that moral judgment which falls. I, I recognize maybe too lightly in this debate when pe- when bombs are going off and people are dying to say like, oh, well, this is a sin and this is morally reprehensible. Maybe it's self evident, but I think you know to your question, I think we as as people who are religious who espouse the gospel and its values, or at least claim to follow Jesus Christ and and Putin does by his you know public performance at least he is a you know an an orthodox russian christian who is in good standing you know he certainly has the the russian patriarch at least in many public statements supporting him so it's been nice to see pope francis you know kind of step up the rhetoric in in condemning what's going on i know that's been appreciated by by a lot of folks especially in ukraine But I don't know what else there is to say, because I feel like when we start talking in in terms of morality and theology, it feels so ineffectual in a time of such great suffering and crisis. But it is important, so I'm I'm grateful
0: you're bringing that up. Well, we can also talk about the nuclear aspects of this as well. And without going too far into a sidebar here— I follow the various workings of the the nuclear labs here in the United States, and there has recently, and this started with the Trump administration, but it's continuing in the Biden administration. Biden administration, there's an attempt to sort of refurbish some of our nuclear weapons and upgrade them to the 21st century. And it's called stockpile maintenance or stockpile security. You see it referred to in a couple of different ways. But we're currently in a sort of existential moment here in the United States about reinvesting in these weapons. And we had an opportunity with the closing of Rocky Flats and a couple of other nuclear weapons labs to actually step away and step back and let these nuclear weapons sort of die a natural death, because if they aren't maintained over time, the knowledge to make them dissipates. And we're currently ramping up to sort of recreate those communities of knowledge here in the United States. And so places where we can be putting our prayer is certainly on the battlefront, but also we can be praying and agitating with our leaders to pull them away from this course of action to say, we don't want to be in a world where in yet another century we are facing nuclear brinksmanship and facing the possibility of total annihilation of innocent populations. So we need to be thinking both about this particular war that's going on, but also the implications that it has for how conflict will, will play out in the decades to come. Because we are right now kind of recapitulating a bunch of the saber rattling that happened in the 1980s. And having grown up with that and having had sleepless nights for years because of that, I don't want that for my children. I want us to have a better future for my children, one where there isn't the cloud, a mushroom cloud, hanging over them in that way.
2: But I mean, here's the thing that's interesting, and, and a major shout out to Archbishop John Wester of Santa Fe, New Mexico, and his really important pastoral letter on exactly this subject. One of the things I, I give him a lot of credit for is reminding the church in the United States in particular, but by extension, the world, that those nightmares that kept you up as a child in the Cold War, David, have never gone away. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think you're pointing this out, that you know those weapons are, are, have always been there. Those stockpiles have always been there. You know, I, I have such mixed feelings too about you know the energy crisis and global climate change because on the one hand, nuclear power is in the short term much much cleaner than coal, right, and, and other sort of more traditional fossil fuels. But on the other hand, Chernobyl, <laughs> Three Mile Island, right, the consequences are are so disproportionately dangerous. And that's why, you know, I I mentioned in a piece not long ago that on the one hand, global climate change is like the slow burning of the earth, the slow melting, and and the nuclear threat is just a very fast burning, (laughs) you know, whether it's through weapons or whether it's through so-called peaceful use of of that material. So I, I feel very conflicted about this in some ways, particularly with the peaceful use of that material. But as long as it exists, as we've seen in eastern Ukraine and for Chernobyl earlier in this year for a brief period of time... All it takes is somebody to occupy or to destroy or to to threaten, you know, power plants and and you have a global disaster on your hands yet again. So I think we have deluded ourselves in some ways, understandably so, because of this desire not to be in a constant state of anxiety. But delusion is not helpful, right? When the when the threat continues to exist.
1: Well, and I would just say that I think the nuclear possibility, whether it's been there all along or it's being raised anew here, always brings me back to this whole idea of of just war and whether that can really be justified or not. So on the one hand, when you had this unjust aggression on the part of Russia towards Ukraine, there was this natural affinity to think, well, of course, they have the right to defend themselves and in a movement which is you know obviously part of the teaching of the just war theory is that that self defense is is justified but it just when you get to the point where you know one side is talking about the possibility of using nuclear weapons you realize how all war is so futile and could lead to the annihilation of not only large populations but the whole planet and so Pacifists I know who were hopeful that Pope Francis was moving towards possibly an encyclical or something more, uh, more strong teaching that would reject just war teaching were a little bit discouraged when on the plane ride back from Kazakhstan, he answered a question in, in the press conference saying, well, that Ukraine has the right to defend themselves and to, to acquire weapons for that. But it's a tough it's a t- it's one thing to argue that in the theoretical and it's another thing when there are actual you know Ukrainians on the ground losing their homes, losing their families so it does sort of remind me that our our faith, if we are being true to our Christianity to Jesus' teaching is that Jesus was pretty radical about this stuff, so I don't know it's it gives us a lot to think about it and as the war drags on and on, we can't put it on the back burner. We need to keep thinking about it
2: I also think it's interesting too. When- When people tune in and and pay attention and and when they get when they think it's about them, you know, I mean, I think we're we're oftentimes a selfish species. And so, you know, with with the the recent escalation of rhetoric from Putin about, you know, he's not bluffing and, and this kind of language around the potential use of nuclear weapons, now people are sitting up and paying attention. It also, you know, we've talked about this on on the podcast. I think back in the spring in the last season, when the, when the invasion began and the war began, that it's like, you know, there are all these geopolitical and kind of global social issues at play too. I mean, arguments can be made about why this is a, a a kind of distinctive war, but there are places of war all over the world that most most people, certainly most of our American peers and colleagues and fellow citizens and residents here, don't think much about. <laughs> and i don't know that the solution is that everybody david to go back to your point about the the fear of atomic bombs keeping you up as a child but i don't think everyone needs to be hyped up in a in a constant state of anxiety that's not productive that's not helpful either but but i do think we need to face some of these realities head on and to your point heidi for those who claim to be Christian, to be more radical about it. I mean, radix means root. Radical means to get to the root of it, to the core of it, to the heart of it, and to get to the basics. And and the gospel is very clear. Jesus does not endorse any kind of violence. Absolutely none. And it drives me mad when I hear people trying to use the gospel to justify it. It just doesn't.
1: Well, sadly, like our other topics, I know we'll be returning to this one again. My favorite advice about peacemaking, though, comes not from a Christian, but from a Buddhist, Thich Nhat Hanh, who talked about how we need to have peace in every step and peace in our own lives. So not all of us can affect change on a geopolitical level, but we can at least try to be more peaceful in our own relationships and in our own lives. So we'll be back again in two weeks. And please join us then at The Francis Effect.
0: The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com francisfxpod. Again, that's patreon.com francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing franciseffectpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have seasons worth of episodes going back into history. We hope that you listen to all of them, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.